You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. God of redemption, thank you for sending your Son Jesus to be our Saviour King. May we deny ourselves take up our crosses and follow him all the way to glory through the cross. Amen. Well, it was 1860 and a very, very, very wealthy English family bore a son, a son whom they named Charles Thomas Studd. See, Charles studied at the prestigious College of Eton, where he became a pro cricket player at the age of just 16. He went on then to study at Cambridge University, where he continued his really, really promising cricketing career. For someone who was just 18 years old, the world was his oyster, and his future was bright. But at 18 years old, Charles decided to follow Jesus. And instead of pursuing that promising cricketing career that lay in front of him, instead of inheriting his family fortune, he decided to sell all of it and become a missionary. In 1885, Charles set sail for China, where he and his wife labored for 10 years until sickness forced them home to England. But sickness could not hold them down. Because in 1900, Charles and his family once again packed up. They migrated to India, where they then spent six years sharing the gospel. Now, you would have thought at that age, he's earned his retirement. Surely he can go back home to England and retire well there, but no. At the age of 50, he then goes alone to Sudan, where he labors until his death in gospel work for the next 21 years. Why in the world? Would Charles, who was born into prosperity, bestowed with great talent, and inheriting a successful future, throw it all away to die alone in a foreign land? Why would he, at the age of 50, slay the thought of retirement to undertake one of the greatest missionary enterprises known to man? Well, I want you to hear the words of Charles Thomas, or C.T. Studd. This is what he said, if Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Why did he do it? Why did he throw it all away and count his richest gain as loss? Because Christ be God. Because Christ be King. Because Jesus is the King. You know, as we arrive at the end of our series, we are approaching the inflection point of Mark's Gospel. Right here, this is the moment where everything changes, for here the disciples realize, the disciples proclaim what C.T. Studd himself realized and motivated him, that Jesus is the King. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that one simple truth can change your life. 
And if you are a Christian, just like C.T. Studd, that one simple truth must control your life. And as we encounter that one simple truth today, Jesus is asking every single one of us here three questions. Three simple questions. And how we answer these questions will change everything. Question number one. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You see, for the last eight chapters, we have watched the disciples The crowds, the Pharisees, King Herod, and even Jesus' own family try to answer that question. Who is this man? The disciples see him as a teacher. The crowds as a miracle worker. The Pharisees as a troublemaker. But none of them can see who he really is. So, in verse 27, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And their answer is actually pretty positive. John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Now you've got to understand, this is a massive improvement of where we've been before, right? At least now they recognize that whoever this man might be, at least he has been sent from God. Remember, King Herod thought that Jesus is John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead. Others had thought that he was Elijah, that that great prophet who did not die but was taken up into heaven by the Lord. And according to Malachi, that man, that prophet Elijah, would one day return to herald the coming Messiah. This is what Malachi says in chapter 4. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. That's who people think Jesus is a prophet sent by God to show them the way to God. A prophet sent by God to show them the way to God. You see, these people will look at Jesus like maybe Muslims will look at Muhammad. Or, or Buddhists might look at Siddhartha Gautama. Neither as God, but both showing the way to him. Muhammad is the prophet who reveals the truth about Allah, it's said. And for Buddhists, Siddhartha Gautama, or Buddha, shows us the way to true enlightenment. That's who these people think that Jesus is, right? Some some prophet who points the way to God. But Jesus is not content with that answer. Look at his question that he now sharpens in verse 29. But you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Do you notice his emphasis? Can you hear his penetrating question? Whatever else anyone else might say, however anyone else might answer, what do you say? How will you answer? You see, Jesus has been very, very patient with his disciples over the last eight chapters, haven't we? Hasn't he? I mean, he's performed miracles, spoken parables and proclaimed the kingdom. He's given these guys every possible opportunity to realize who he is, but now time is up. The moment of decision has come. Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet. Who do you say that I am? Now, let's face it, right? If you've been coming along in Mark's gospel, we've followed these disciples long enough to have pretty low expectations of them, haven't we? We're really not expecting them to get this right. But... Look at how Peter answers. You, 
are the Messiah. You are the King. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one who will save us. You're the one who will establish God's kingdom here on earth. You are nothing like Muhammad, and you are nothing like Buddha. You don't simply show us the way. No, you are the way. You don't merely proclaim the truth. You are the truth. You don't just offer life. You are the life. My gosh, this is that groundbreaking news that trends number one on Twitter. This search on Google and source the number one on the Billboard 200. There it is. Kanye West declares that Jesus is king. Now, I want you to realize this isn't just some airy-fairy spiritualized reality, right? I mean, look around. Here's a bunch of Christians declaring that this guy called Jesus from 2,000 years ago exists as king. And you're sitting there going, I don't see him. Is this just some sort of spiritualized reality? But I want you to know that Jesus is king, not just over some, you know, soul society or parallel universe. No, he is king over the world. And he is king over every king. I wonder, did you notice where this scene takes place? It's set in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. See, this is a city that's named in honor of Caesar Augustus as the emperor of Rome. That is where that Peter is declaring Jesus is king. He's declaring that Jesus is king not just anywhere, but in the seat of political power. He's saying that Jesus is king and not Caesar. Not Trump, not Putin, not Xi Jinping, not Kim Jong-un. None of them are king. That one simple truth, Jesus is King, radically changes not just our individual lives, no, it changes the whole world. Let me speak very directly to you right now. Our point of decision is coming. In fact, it's already here. You see, at this point in Mark's Gospel, the question for you and me is no longer, who do those people say that I am? No, the question for you and for me is this, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Just as Jesus threw down the gauntlet to his disciples, I want to tell you, he is throwing down the gauntlet to you and me right now. Jesus is asking you this question this very moment, and you cannot dodge it, and you cannot avoid it. Let me tell you what answers are not good enough. You cannot say, well, my, my friends say, oh, oh yeah, my, my church teaches, and, and no, Jesus will come back and ask, no, but you, who do you say that I am? See, this is the most crucial question, the most critical question you will ever, ever answer. And your answer will set the direction of your life both here and into eternity. If you've been traveling with us through Mark's gospel and you don't yet call Jesus your king, let me challenge you. Do not leave this hall today without answering that one simple question. Do not delay it. Do not put it off. Do not make excuses. The disciples' moment was then. My dear friend, your moment is now. Who do you say that I am? You are the king.
question number two. What kind of king am I? Now, you would think, right, after Peter has finally, after eight long chapters, figured out who Jesus is, Jesus would want him to tell the world. But he doesn't. Instead, in verse 30, he says, he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Why? Because Jesus himself wants to define what kind of king he will be. And verse 31 will tell us what kind of king Jesus is. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. When you read your Bible, notice those little phrases. And I wonder if you notice that little phrase, it was necessary. The only way that God's King will rule, His kingdom will come, and His people will be saved is for Jesus to, what? To, to be accepted by the religious and the political elite? To, to crush the Roman Empire? To overthrow Caesar? No, what is necessary for Jesus to reign as King? You see, if last week we saw the, that the religious leaders were demanding and looking for a demonstration of power, this week the disciples are looking for a showing of strength. I wonder if you ever watched the news at night, you see images of those tin pot dictators in their countries inspecting their vast armies. Those armies, that military hardware that just kind of goes across the capital city as that dictator flexes their hard power. That, that's what the disciples are looking for. Jesus to reign in his might. You see, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That's a title used by the prophet Daniel to describe God's promised Messiah. And I want you to see what Daniel prophesied all those years ago about the Son of Man. I, Daniel, continued watching in the night visions. And suddenly, one like a, here it is, Son of Man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. As I was watching the horn, this horn, the enemy, waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived. And judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. Can you hear what Daniel's prophesying? Can you hear what he's saying? God will send one like a son of man to rescue his people from captivity. And when he comes to establish his kingdom, he will crush the enemy. He will flex his might. What is necessary for Jesus to reign as king? Peter says, the blood of your enemies. But Jesus says, no the blood of your king. The only way for Jesus to reign as king is for Jesus to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise after three days. Just think about it for a moment, right? That doesn't make any sense at all. Why must the king die? Wouldn't that be mission failure? I mean, think about it. The king is supposed to be the one rescuing his people. If he dies, they die. It would be like Aragon coming as the rightful king of Gondor. 
coming to defeat the armies of orcs and Minas Tirith. But instead of him defeating those armies, instead of him saving Gondor, what happens? Aragorn himself dies. And if Aragorn dies, what hope is there now for Gondor? And if King Jesus dies, what hope is there now for Israel? If King Jesus dies, what hope is there now for us? If Jesus is to reign as king, why? Why in the world is it necessary for him to die? Well, here it is. It is necessary for Jesus to die because our greatest enemy is not King Herod and it's not the kings of this world. Our greatest enemy is the sin in our hearts. The sin of living as our own kings. The sin which deserves God's wrath. The sin which deserves death. You see, if Jesus is going to reign as king, he has to defeat that enemy. He has to defeat the death that we deserve. And so he does. He suffers in our place. He is rejected in our place. And he dies in our place. He drinks the cup of God's wrath for us. And he dies the death that we deserve. You see, when you look at the cross, you are looking at the death of death in the death of Christ. It's that moment where Jesus defeats the last enemy. The moment where Jesus reigns as king. This is not the king that Peter expected. This is not the king that we expected. Let's face it, right? We, we expect, if you work in corporate Australia, you, you expect your king, your leader, your partner as such to be strong, tough and, and hard-headed, someone that can drive a good deal. We kind of expect them to, I don't know, echo Harvey Specter, the best closer in New York City. What does he say? I'm not about caring, I'm about winning. Or he might say the difference between you and me is that you want to lose small and I want to win big. But Jesus is not that kind of king. Peter is so disturbed that in verse 32, he even rebukes Jesus for even uttering the thought, perish the thought, but I love what Jesus does next. You rebuke me? No, I rebuke you. What does he say? Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. There's an epitaph to put on a tombstone. The disciple Jesus called Satan. It's not what you want to be remembered for, is it? But look at why. He recognizes Jesus is the king, but what's so tragic is he's got the wrong sort of king. Jesus is not a king by human standards. He's God's chosen king. As we sing every week, a good and gracious king. The shepherd king the crucified king. You know, just the other day, as I pulled up at a set of red lights, I looked over that awkward sideways look to your left, and you hope to God that the person over there doesn't look right, and you make eye contact, but I looked left. And in the car to my left, I saw on the dashboard a little plastic figurine of Jesus. And he was bobbling away there. <laughs> and it occurred to me that so many of us, right, we have our own plastic Jesus, don't we? Our own idea of what kind of king he might be, because however he looks, he surely does not look like that plastic figurine. We have our own plastic Jesus. There's revolutionary Jesus, right? 
the Jesus who combats global inequality, climate change, and world hunger. There's, there's security Jesus who promises, a, who promises us a successful career, a stable family, and a secure lifestyle. And there's so many other forms of Jesus that we take. There's a comfort Jesus. There's the Jesus who is the therapeutic Jesus and who will follow and do whatever we want. But I know that for some of us here, we see Jesus as a demanding Jesus. A Jesus who is harsh, unsympathetic and indifferent toward our pain. But I want you to know that Jesus is not that kind of king. I want you to burn your plastic Jesus. Because Jesus is the king who died to save you and me from our sin. He is the king of glory through the cross. And that means he is a king who meets us in our weakness. He is a king who personally knows our pain. Don't say that Jesus doesn't know how you feel. He knows how you feel. My gosh, he suffered to save the suffering. He was rejected to accept the rejected. He doesn't rule in power that only leaves room for the powerful. No, he rules in weakness that extends a welcome to the weak. Who do you say I am? You are the king. What kind of king am I? The crucified king. So question three. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Verse 34, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What does it look like to follow King Jesus? What does it look like to be a Christian? It starts with denying ourselves. Now, let's be clear, that's not a call to to deny material or physical pleasures. No, that's called asceticism. That's, that's Buddhist in many ways. It's that Buddhist call to separate yourself from this world. No, that's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to hand the reins of our lives over to Him, to submit every part of our lives under His rule, to get off the throne of our hearts and to enthrone Him as our King. Jesus is calling us to repent and believe, to turn and to trust, All of our plans, all of our dreams, all of our hopes and all of our aspirations, all of them belong to Him. What does it mean to follow King Jesus? It means declaring that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. For when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. You see, at the heart of following Jesus, is taking up our cross. The cross is the instrument on which Jesus would be crucified. The instrument on which He would die for our sins. And to the Roman Empire, the cross was an emblem of suffering and shame. But here's the truth. If you and I are going to follow a crucified King, then we have to live cross-shaped and cruciform lives. Lives of suffering rejection and death. What does it mean to follow King Jesus? It means to live His life, a life of victory through defeat, acceptance through rejection, glory through shame. It means living a life that is marked by sacrifice, 
It means living a life that lives by this mantra, no cross, no crown. Doesn't sound like much of a sales pitch, does it? I mean, you might think, gosh, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, who in the world would want to do it? And yet, to more than 2.4 billion people in the world today embrace that cruciform life to follow a crucified king. Why? 2.4 billion insane people? Why would they do it? Why would you do it? Well, in verse 35 and onwards, this is what Jesus has to say. Why? Because it's worth it. It's worth it. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. You see, friend, if you try to live as king of your life today, you might do an average job. Some of you, better than average. But you will lose it all in the end. But if you live with Jesus as your king, if you live with his gospel as your mission, whatever you might lose in this life, I want to promise you, it will be worth it all in the end. It will be worth it all. It's the same message in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See, if you reject Jesus as your king, you might very well be approved of by your family. You might be accepted by your parents. You might be lauded by your friends. But in the end, you will be rejected by God. But if you declare that Jesus is king, I want to tell you, no matter what your parents say, no matter what your family thinks, no matter how your friends might treat you, be it shame, be it disappointment, be it rejection, I promise you that it is worth it all. Because God will be your father and he will welcome you home. You know, in our church family, I know that there's any number of you whose parents are opposed to you following King Jesus. And the cost of disciple for you guys has been significant, greater than I would ever count in my own life. And if that's you, I want you to know that when Jesus returns, He will not look on you with shame. He will exalt you in glory. If your barrier to following Jesus is your parents or your family's disapproval or your friend's rejection or what other people might think of you and you're afraid of that, let me, be, let me level with you, right? Following Jesus is costly and your parents may very well look on you with shame. Your friends may very well reject you and those around you may mock you. And yet, and yet, it's worth it. It's worth it. If Christ be God, C.T. Studd said, and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And in verse 36, we find that question that brings it all home. For what does it benefit a man? Or what does it benefit someone? 
to gain the whole world and yet lose his own life. You know it, right? You don't have to be a Christian to get this. We can spend our whole lives climbing new mountains and reaching new heights only to be left at the top, all alone and with nothing. If you want to know what definitely isn't worth it, it's gaining everything today, only to lose it all tomorrow. The first home, the perfect job, the PhD, the high income, the ideal marriage, all of it, chaff. But with King Jesus, whatever we might lose in this life, in the end, we get it all. We get it all. If we follow a crucified king, brothers and sisters, we need to live a cruciform life, a life of glory through the cross. It might mean sacrificing a potential relationship with a non-Christian who sits outside of God's kingdom. It might mean turning down a promotion to save time for your church and mission and evangelism. My gosh, it might even mean quitting your job, selling your business and changing career all to save your soul. But I want you to know, yet again, beyond a shadow of a doubt, whatever your sacrifice, it's worth it. And you might be sitting there thinking, Adam, that sounds awfully radical, doesn't it? I mean, the call to follow Jesus by dying to ourselves, it's extreme. And the world, when we look around at the world, religious extremism, that generally ends badly, right? But notice what Jesus is calling us to. He is calling us to a radical and extreme discipleship that does not take someone else's life but lays down our own. He's calling us to a radical and extreme discipleship that sacrifices not others but ourselves. And yes, this is a matter of life and death. Nothing could be more important because if you don't know what you're willing to die for, you will never know what you're willing to live for. The only life truly worth living is a life for Jesus and his gospel. Did you notice? In verse 35, that little phrase there. Whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Why not just say, because of me will save it? No, why include and the gospel? Because the best way you can spend your life is in sacrificial service of Jesus' mission to the world. It's by acknowledging that all our work all our money, all our time, and all our relationships, all of it belongs to Jesus. All of it must be deployed in the proclamation of the gospel. So many of you here are at the point in your life where you're planning things, aren't you? You're planning marriage, you're planning work, you're planning where to live, you're planning what home to buy, and this is how we tend to go about it. We ask that question, what are my life plans first? And then we ask, how might God fit into it? But actually, it should be the exact opposite. The first question we should ask is, how might I use this life in service of my king? And then the second question ought to be, how might my work, money, time and relationships be used to advance his gospel? How might my, gosh, how might my university preferences and what I want to do in uni be shaped by the mission of God? How might my major that I choose in my degree be shaped by the mission of God? How might my work be shaped by the mission of God? How might my marriage and my home and my family be shaped by the mission of God? 
How might all of those things serve the ultimate glory of Jesus Christ, the King of the world? But so often we ask the question, how might they serve the glory of me, the King of my life? You know, for some of you here, I want to say that will actually mean giving up your career committing your every day to the mission of God, whether as a missionary, a church planter, or a pastor. But not for all of us. And you might go, oh, that's not me. If you jump to that thought very quickly, then think twice. But brother, sister, whatever you do, don't do nothing. Don't do nothing. Sacrifice something. Because if Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. Who do you say that I am? What kind of king am I? Will you follow me? If you're not a Christian, let me be absolutely clear. If you say, Jesus is the King, Jesus is my King. And if you say, He died in my place to save me from sin, then you have no choice but to follow Him. You cannot remain indifferent to Jesus. You cannot continue to look at what everyone else is saying. You need to answer for yourself. Who do you say that He is? Who do you say that He is? And if you repent and believe, if you turn and trust Him as your Saviour King, let me be very clear, you are a Christian. You have been forgiven. You have been accepted into His kingdom. You have been adopted into His family. Bank on that. It's amazing. And if that's you, don't be ashamed of Him. Don't just call Him your King. Live with Him as your King. Live every day with a life that proclaims Jesus is the King. In a moment, I'm going to say a prayer. And I want to invite you that this day, if you truly want to follow Jesus as your Saviour King, that you pray it along with me. And as I pray each line, I want you to repeat it after me in the silence of your own heart. And I want you to know that if you do, Jesus will become your King. He will save you from sin. He will deliver you from death. He will reconcile you with God. And friend, if you pray this, please come and tell me after the service. Because what I'd love to do is show you what it means to live every day with Jesus as your King. Let's pray. Dear God, I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I am guilty of living as King of my own life. I am guilty of living without Jesus as my King. Please forgive me. Thank you for sending your Son Jesus to suffer 
be rejected and die in my place. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me a whole new life. Please forgive me. Please change me. Please help me not be ashamed of Jesus. Please help me live with Jesus as my King. Amen.